Hi, this is your CyberPath. We're the podcast that helps you get your dream cybersecurity job. I'm Kip Boyle, and I'm an experienced hiring manager of cybersecurity professionals. Wes and I are taking some time off, so today we have a special episode for you. Our friend Mike Sheward is an amazing network penetration tester. He finds vulnerabilities in web apps and in the infrastructure that they're hosted on. He's my go-to guy whenever my consulting customers need a pen test. So recently, Mike was super generous and he spent some time with our Cyber Pathfinders during a weekly office hours segment. And he told them how he got into cybersecurity and he answered lots of their questions. So today we're going to share this interview with you. Now, before we hear from Mike, I want to remind you about our free guide. It's called Play to Win, Getting Your Dream Cybersecurity Job. And it describes how taking a capture the flag approach is going to help you compete and win in your job hunting. It's a really helpful 20-page visual guide, and you can check it out. You can go get a copy for yourself. Just uh, go to yourcyberpath.com forward slash PDF, yourcyberpath.com forward slash PDF. Check it out. Tell me if you like it. Tell me if you don't like it, because I'll change it uh, if you've got some really great feedback for me. Okay. I really think you're going to enjoy this episode with Mike. So let's hear what he's got to say. Um, But yeah, essentially, I've been in information security for about 15 years at this point now. Uh, I was born and raised in the UK. Um, I've been in the States for about 11 years. Um, So my background is that uh, I, one of my first jobs was doing network engineering for the local government, uh, local education authority where I grew up in Worcestershire, home to the famous source. Um, and, uh, and, and I happened to be doing network monitoring one day and, uh, I saw on a kind of traffic graphs, like a bunch of very strange outbound traffic, um, leaving a network that we were in charge of. And so um, it, it looked to me, I kind of dug into it a bit, I did a PCAP of it, and um, it looked to me kind of like malware traffic. And so I decided it was the end of the day, and these were all schools that we use in the network. So I decided to um, to just kind of, you know, cut the network connection there to make sure that there wasn't anything malicious going on and people weren't losing data. And so I, the way I did it was basically shut down the machine that connected that school to the, the internet remotely. And um, the next day I planned to go in early and just reach out to the school and make sure everything was okay, which is what I did. And um, I spoke to the IT person at that school and he said, oh, I think I know what that is. Don't worry, I'll go check it out. He reconnected to the internet and uh, that was that was it. I didn't think about it for a for, you know, I didn't think much more of it. And then about six months later, um, a person from the Education Authority's HR department walks in and says, hey, can I talk to you about something? And of course, I'm like, oh, what did I do? What did I say? And um, they said, hey, so what actually happened was uh, you actually caught that guy uh, hosting things that were very bad in a school environment and the traffic you saw was uh, peer-to-peer file sharing traffic. And I was like, well, crap, that's, that's, that's kind of bad, but I'm glad I caught him, I guess. And so, yeah, we had to put all the evidence together. And, and I was like, well, that's actually a really good feeling to know that you noticed something and you stopped something very bad from happening. And now a bad person is in trouble. 
And that's kind of what set me off on the journey from like being a network engineer to, to where I am now and everything along the way. Um, so what happened from there was uh, I decided to go and do more kind of security specific things. This is about the 2007, 2008 timeframe. And so I ended up coming across to Dallas because from the UK, um, it was still fairly expensive to do like training courses over there. So it was cheaper for me to fly to Dallas, stay in a hotel and do a kind of boot camp training course for CEH and CHFI certified ethical hacker and certified computer hacking forensic investigator. Um, so I came over to Dallas and did that. That's where I met Jess, my future wife, um, and explains kind of how I ended up in the States. Uh, I went, um, I, I, I first met her there and then I kind of, uh, I went back to the UK. Uh, I went from local government to central government. I worked in British intelligence for a bit, doing defensive stuff. And then I wanted to get more into like pen testing and, <clears throat> and offensive stuff. So um, in, in government work, obviously you're very kind of boxed in at civil service work. So you get given a job and a grade and a role and you stick with it. And then you have to kind of work your way through the system. Um, so it would have taken like a really long time for me to be in the civil service and get to the job I wanted. So I quit and became a private contractor and sat in the same building next to the same people and could do the job I wanted. And I also got paid more as well, which was great. So that's what I did. I worked for a company called Encryption, um, spelt incorrectly uh, because of domain name reasons. Uh, and I ran the pen test. Uh, sorry, the, I, I was a pen tester primarily, but I also ran the, the digital forensics um, service that we established there. Um, and then I was in encryption for a few years until I finally moved over to get married. Um, I stayed working for them remotely uh, when I first got to the States. Um, but ultimately, when I got to the States, I ended up working for a company called Concur. Uh, they do travel and expense management. They're a software as a service company. I was kind of the first, yeah, the first technical security hire at Concur. So um, basically, I went into an environment where they had a bunch of reasonably good security things all over the place, but no actual formal technical security program. Uh, kind of with my background being in a bit of defensive and a bit of offensive security, it was my job to kind of piece that together. Um, so when I left Concur about four years later, uh, after they got acquired by SAP, I was running the global security operations team. Um, it was quite funny because I got asked, you know, what's your... It was kind of because I was fairly new and the only person to have the job, I was allowed to pick my own job title. So I picked manager of global security operations because I thought it sounded awesome. And uh, it's quite funny now, like five years later, seeing like jobs come up in that team on LinkedIn at Concur. And it's like, <laughs> I just pulled that name out of nowhere, you know, and it's still there. So that's for about four years. Um, yeah, like I say, SAP came in and bought Concur. One of the really nice things about concur was it was still a fairly small company while I was there um, so I still knew most of the people even though it was like a global company um, but when SAP came in obviously it becomes like a giant company like 80,000 people company and typically you know the bigger the company and the bigger the security team the less you get to do because you get kind of um, you know siloed into doing a very specific thing so that's kind of like my first pro tip is if you look at smaller companies and startups for security roles, you'll probably find yourself doing more of, you know, different things, more of a generalist than a specialist, um, just because resources are obviously more constrained. Uh, 
And as I've kind of gone through my career, I've, I've found that I prefer being a bit more of a generalist and um, exploring different things. I kind of get bored if I get like siloed into one thing. Um, so when SAP obviously came in and, you know, they were very specific job titles and roles and things like that, I decided it wasn't really for me. Uh, in 2015, that was, uh, I did a couple of different jobs. I, I wasn't really a great fan of either of them, to be honest, at Expedia and a startup called ExtraHop. ExtraHop was fine, but I actually ended up getting um, uh, a, a kind of tap on the shoulder from Raj Singh, who was one of the co-founders of Concur. He, um, he was setting up kind of a new company in Seattle called Accolade, um, healthcare tech startup. And he asked me to go do pretty much the same job that I'd done at Concur there. So I went to Accolade and I was there for about another sort of four years and uh, the company IPO'd. Um, and that exposed me to a lot of kind of medical HIPAA information and things like that. So it was a good, it was a good journey and gained a lot of experience. Um, I kind of then wanted to take the final step because I thought, you know what, I really don't need sleep anymore. Screw it. So I wanted to become like a chief information security officer um, and have like complete control over the program. So uh, I went to a company called Amperity, which is kind of in the same, uh, the same sort of fold, if you like, in Seattle of Madrona-backed companies that Accolade is and Concur was. Um, and I was there for a little bit. It wasn't really a great environment for me, but it was fine because I got offered another position at um, a company called Particle, which is where I am now. It's an Internet of Things uh, startup, and I've been there since January. Um, and uh, I've been essentially their CISO the whole time. Um, and I've now been given some extra responsibilities outside of security, but primarily I'm doing like security and compliance work there. Um, and it's, it's awesome. Uh, along the way, um, so I, I've written it, like I said, I've re I wrote a couple of books. And the reason for doing that was um, not something that I really set out to do. So I wrote a book called The Digital Forensic Diaries, which is a, basically a collection of short stories based on some of the real world investigations and things that I've done over the years, either at Encryption or at Concur. Um, and I basically took actual things that happened and kind of fictionalized them because obviously you can't go and write things that are covered by NDA. Uh, and I did that simply because I got really pissed off at an episode of Scorpion on CBS, which is, uh, you know, just like a CSI cyber type deal, like one of these fancy shows where they show off all these cybercrime things. And, uh, you know, the scene that did it for me was there was a scene where um, the hackers were trying to, or the saviors were trying to free an aircraft of um, a virus by passing an ethernet cable down the landing gear of a flying jet. Um, and there's so many things wrong with that not least that you can't get from inside the plane to on the landing gear because it's like a pressurized structure. But anyway, um, so that really annoyed me to the point where I went off and wrote a book, which is what any sensible person would do. So um, Digital Forensic Diaries is essentially that. Um, it's, it's basically five short stories about real world things that happened and they've all been fictionalized, like I say. Um, what happened then was, uh, a lady called Becky read that book and she worked for a publisher um, in the UK. She actually grew up not too far from where I grew up in the UK. 
and um, they wrote, they did technical books. Um, and so she reached out to me and said, hey, really like Digital Forensic Diaries, which I kind of only did as like a hobby type thing just to see how it would turn out. Would you like to write uh, a, a you know technical book, a nonfiction book? And I said, sure. Um, I'm a bit nervous about doing it because it's, you know, I've heard horrible things about doing that. And, you know, I, I typically have a tendency to, you know, start things and then let them drift away and then maybe go back to them. But when you write a book for somebody, obviously they give you very strict deadlines and all that. Um, but I did it and I gave it a go and uh, I really liked the process. And that first book came out in 2018 and it was focused on forensics and incident response. Um, and then uh, a couple of years passed and earlier this year, we did the same thing again, but with a different book on security operations. Um, and in between those kind of things, I've re-picked up the, so there's like the non-tech, the non-fiction technical work books that I've written that, you know, are kind of just like brain dumps of things that I've done over the years that I kind of don't get to enjoy so much because I'm always on deadlines and you know, people get angry at me if I miss deadlines. And then there's the kind of fun, uh, exciting writing that I do, which is, uh, first of all, the digital forensic diaries, and then I did some pen test diaries as well. So there's about three of those out there right now. Uh, I have the other two stories uh, in my brain, uh, but very similar to the the digital forensic diaries. They're real world stories about um, uh, you know actual pen tests that I've done um, over the years. Uh, there are, you know, pen testing is is so much fun. I really enjoy it. Um, and, you know, I did it kind of full time fairly early on in my career when, you know, when I worked at, in the government and, uh, and encryption. And I, I was probably a better, you know, technologist then because I'd spend a lot more time playing with code and, you know, exploring things and tools and things like that. Um, so I, I, I would think that on paper I would be a better pen tester because I had more time to, you know, experiment and play around. But I, I will say that kind of when I do pen testing now, which I still do a little bit of, I have my own company that I do little pen test projects on the side where, where, when I, where I can, um, to stay current with it, if you like. Um, I feel like I'm a better pen tester now because uh, of all the experience that I've gained in like management roles. And I know that the kind of weird things that people do uh, that aren't strictly code or technical things, but instead are, you know, a classic example I always use, like 10 years ago, I was on site at a government location and they'd given, they'd given everybody in the Active Directory domain domain admin rights by accident because they added domain users to domain admin. And nobody knew about that. And it had been like that for years. Um, there was one time when um, they were out, one, another agency was outsourcing its IT to support to, a, to another company. And in order to give them the ability to manage their Active Directory, they created a, an active directory management portal and exposed it to the internet. They just forgot to put authentication on it. So anybody could administer their active directory. Um, that actually made it into one of the pen test diaries. So th things like that you kind of pick up and figure out along the way. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, that's how my journey played out and how I ended up where I am. I've been very fortunate that, you know, I've, I've, I've had, I've, I'd say that I've taken a couple of wrong turns, um, Expedia and Parity, but I've always been able to bounce back fairly quickly in the event of doing that. Um, uh, so, you know, my, my takeaway is, you know, everything happens for a reason and, 
you have to try different things to um, to to make sure that you you know you know you're in the right place. And I'm I'm super stoked with where I'm at now at Particle. I think it's kind of like the perfect role for me because it's the a young company with um, a fairly decent, you know, solid user base and a lot of room to build a program. And, um, you know, it gives me a chance to be hands-on and work with engineers, but it also gives me a chance to sit in front of customers and uh, do some of the businessy side of security as well. So it's a great mix for me at the moment. Excellent. Thanks, Mike. Mm -hmm. no for getting it all kicked off. Um, what do you think about just uh, going into Q&A? Sure. Anybody got a Q that Mike can A? <laughs> I actually have a quick one. Yeah. Um, from a security perspective, what's your favorite cloud provider right now, cloud services provider? Uh, AWS, by far. Um, so I'll tell you about it. So one of the really nice things about AWS so there's a couple of things that come up when you talk about cloud providers within certain industries, right? So um, there are, you know, if you think of like bigger, older companies that are terrified of the cloud, um, and, and, and that's kind of like as, as somebody who's run, you know, security at a couple of startups now, like everyone for the most part is in, in AWS or GCP or maybe Azure, um, but AWS is, you know, rule supreme. And one of the big objections that a lot of, when you're a startup and you're selling to an enterprise, one of the big things that comes up all the time is people are always super freaked out for no reason about being in the cloud. So um, I, uh, w one of the stories I always tell when, when I'm in like a room and I'm trying to help the sales team at Particle, for example, do a deal with an enterprise and they're freaked out by the idea of AWS. Um, I say, there's a couple of things I was told. Like, first of all, I know exactly uh, where all my assets are and what they are because you can't do anything in AWS without it being in the dashboard in the console, right? Like, without being able to see it. And I said to one giant company before, like, I bet you a million dollars didn't say that you um, you could not accurately tell me where all your assets are, and they probably have like three or four different asset tracking systems and they're probably all different. And, um, you know, like I know exactly where my compute power is. I know exactly how much it costs. I know where the code is. So, um, that, that in itself is pretty phenomenal. Um, and then the other thing as well is uh, I always tell people that I, I'd, I'd much rather my data be stored in AWS with all the default settings on that give you security than say, for example, on somebody's, um, uh, random server in some data center somewhere um, or under a desk. One time I found uh, there was an, uh, an employee of a government agency that was hosting his own web server or web hosting company under his desk at the government office. And I found that because I was doing a pen test and ran a scan and found like a website for like a bakery in the outside range. And I was like, why are you hosting a bakery website here? And they're like, we're not. And I'm like, yeah, and then we traced it through and it was under some guy's desk. Um, so just like the asset management side of things is, is, you know, you need visibility to be able to protect stuff. How can you protect things if you don't know where they are? That in itself is pretty much the, the biggest and best thing for the cloud. And then the other thing is, yeah, with AWS specifically, um, they're just further along in terms of like security tools and monitoring that you can enable. Um, so for example, they have guard duty, 
um, which is kind of like their inbuilt intrusion detection system. It's like one click and you get like coverage that companies will spend millions of dollars and years and years trying to get, and you can just get it in one click. So yeah, AWS by far and away. Oh, I got a queue. What's guard duty? Guard duty is the, it's like a intrusion detection system. So like what happens is it, um, it takes, so in AWS, we have the concept of virtual private clouds, uh, which are basically like networked within your account. Um, and it essentially takes every traffic log or every time something flows across through your VPC, um, every IP address it will take a look at and it will flag if there's any kind of unusual or malicious activity associated with it. And they've recently started doing, um, doing the same, but with S3, which is their storage solution logs as well. And one of the big horror stories that you hear about AWS all the time is how people accidentally expose S3 buckets to the internet, right? And then random folks can just show up and start pilfering through them. Um, the, the, the new feature in Guard Duty basically flags when that starts to happen. So if you have accidentally exposed an S3 bucket, which is getting very hard to do, by the way, because they, they now also flag it with giant, you know, orange banners and things like that whenever you do it. Um, so uh, whenever that happens, um, it will trigger a, a, a new kind of alert as well. Cool. To, to be to be honest, I'm always um, skeptical of intrusion detection systems. They seem to just be um, really difficult and expensive to deal with. Yeah. Um, constantly throwing false positives at you, uh, and you know, just just really wears you down. Mm-hmm. So when when a when a real you know um, event gets detected. There's a chance that it's just going to get lost in all the noise, and yeah. who knows about all the false negatives, right? But um, you know, you, you're shaking your head. Yes. Um, does guard duty is it is it any better than the average? I mean, just in yeah. terms of its ability to actually do its job. Yeah. So particle, and to give you an idea of like size, um, we have about so particle provides hardware that looks kind of like this or like this, and um, it, we provide the connectivity and the, and the cloud services around that as well. And um, so we have about 100,000 devices online every day, uh, about 200,000 platform users. And and so that's quite a fair amount of connectivity. Um, and we get probably six or seven guard duty alerts a day, which is nothing really. Um, to kind of give you some comparison, right, like there's um, – Tools in the space, there's no shortage of intrusion detection systems, either open source or closed source. Um, but some of the most expensive intrusion detection systems out there are some of the worst. So um, let's think. So FireEye, right? That's a huge name in the world of intrusion detection. And when it came out, it was like this, you know, the latest and greatest in detecting what's going on. And obviously FireEye bought Mandiant, which is a big consulting company as well. And so they are like a big cybersecurity player, if you like. And um, we evaluated FireEye at Concur and it it had problems. And, you know, like in order to deploy FireEye at every office location at Concur, which is what we needed to do because every Concur office had its own internet connection. So, you know, it needed every edge needed an IDS for it to be covered. We got a quote for $1.5 million. Um, which was probably like, you know, 
twice my budget at Kinkara, so I was like, I can't obviously do that. So I did the same thing. We did like a proof of concept in a couple of offices there, and then I went out and I bought. Obviously, when 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 they got that quote, I just laughed at them, and then um, I went out and bought uh, like these tiny little HP micro servers that were like four hundred bucks each for like a thirty-two gigabyte server with three NICs in it, so I could just uh, you know build my own IDS for five hundred bucks, and uh, that's what we did. We ended up using uh, Suricata, which is an open source IDS, and got pretty much the same information um, that we would have got out of FireEye, but obviously for much cheaper. And uh, it worked very, very similarly. Um, FireEye was probably just, you know, a little slicker on the user interface and things like that. And now um, the new FireEye, um, and I've told you about this before, Kip, is a company called Darktrace. Um, so Darktrace is a huge, uh, cybersecurity company out of um, out of the UK, um, and they make a product that is very similar to FireEye, uh, and they do the whole thing of sensors and networks and intrusion detection alerts and things like that. But what they've done is they've they've done it in a way that um, it's designed to appeal primarily to like executives, and so literally they hired a person from LucasArts to design the user interface. So the user interface is like a computer game. And it's like this giant map of lasers shooting off all over the place. So if we're in an actual security operation center where you want to be getting as much information as quickly as possible in as few screens as possible, um, it's complete garbage and no one will ever look at it. Um, and they're very, very you know hushed about exactly how it works. Um, and yeah, it's like the perfect example of a tool that's designed to look fancy and not actually do much. Um, so yeah, Gaju is the opposite of that. It's um, very easy to deploy and very accurate and reasonable. And if you think about the volume of data that Amazon collects now in terms of like web traffic as a, as you know, probably the biggest host on the on the face of the planet, like they're very they can use that to train their models pretty accurately, and it's fairly decent. Akamai to be to be vendor neutral, Akamai is a content delivery network and they do something very similar to Guard Duty. Um, and again, you get better quality results based on the fact that they can see more of what's going through the internet and they can make better decisions. Hey Mike, a question for you. So for aspiring cybersecurity students, what would you tell them, you know, cause cloud is a thing these days. Mm -hmm. What's the best way to quote learn cloud? Is it hands-on? watching you know videos what recommendation would you give someone who's just coming in um they all have every cloud provider so azure gcp uh, aws all have free tiers right um i mean everybody learns differently but what i would say is um there probably isn't any substitution to just going in there and spinning up a free tier account um you have to give your credit card but like you can set you know, emergency alerts and limits and things like that to make sure you don't exceed the free tier. Um, but you just want to make sure that you just go in there and explore the services and play around. Um, the really cool thing about AWS is it looks the same whether you're sat at home just tinkering in it or if you're running a multi-million dollar company, right? Like they all pretty much look the same. It just kind of scales out a bit differently and you can go, um, you know, from spending zero dollars a day to spending a million dollars a day very easily if you want to again that's why you put limits on spending um so yeah i would say just go tinker um 
you know, you can try, I think, pretty much every service in AWS free for 30 days anyway, um, regardless of volume of events. So uh, that's that's what I do. Um, and, you know, one thing that I'd say is uh, I've seen, like, security vendors and people like that, you know, try and say that the network is dead and, you know, network security skills and things like that are dying out because everything's in the cloud and everything, um, you know, is endpoint centric now, especially now that we're in a world where most of us will be working remotely uh, for a pretty long time. Um, and people are saying, you know, traditional network security skills aren't as important anymore. But if you look inside an AWS cloud uh, or inside a home network, there's still a network there. Um, everything still has to talk across the traditional TCP IP network. Still going to be intrusions and things like that that show up on those networks. So understanding those fundamentals, even though they might exist within a cloud rather than in a traditional data center, for example, for most people, uh, is still super, super important and super, super valuable as well. Well, I'd, I'd happen to agree. I think that with the rise in home users, we're seeing a lot more cyber incidents and attacks against the home user. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of data that people are now pulling down from their cloud and manipulating directly on their machines yep. on a non-corporate network. And we're also seeing, I mean, this last week, look at all the stories of just as well, all the cyber ransom, uh, the crypto lockers have just exploded this. I mean, there's a U.S. healthcare system that the largest in the U.S. just got shut down because of ransomware. So I think that, you know, to say that this is diminishing I think is somebody buying too much into the cloud marketing platform. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I remember like very, so very early on, um, one of my favorite tests I ever did, um, there was a company like a defense contractor in the UK that um, they were experimenting with uh, more remote work essentially um, because there was some reason they, they were running out of room, I think, was the primary reason in their in their facilities. So they were experimenting in making some roles remote. And this was, you know, like 10 years ago. So it wasn't all that common in the UK. Um, when you think about the UK compared to the States, it's a good rule of thumb that's about 10 years behind. Um, you, uh, so they, they, um, they wanted somebody to go out and like attempt to basically go sit outside an employer's house and see what they could do while that person was connected to the, to the network. And I went to the first, I, they gave me like three addresses and I went to the first one, couldn't do anything. Went to the second one, couldn't do anything. So outside the third one and I was like, bingo, it was a web network, a web wireless network. So super easy to, to crack into. And then uh, I actually found out that they had not set up uh, their, they were supposed to use like an issued laptop for doing VPN stuff, but they'd actually installed it on their personal machine because they enjoyed having the larger monitor and keyboard and everything that they had with their desktop. And so they had a very old desktop machine running a VPN into a, uh, a fairly secretive defense contractor. And the defense contractor couldn't detect that because um, they'd just spun up this new VPN. Um, so to them, it was just like a connected client. So yeah, I was able to like jump on the network and then find that machine. And because it was a, um, what's called a split tunneled VPN. So you have half the traffic go down to the tunnel to the, um, to the employer. And then the other half can still flow around freely, um, on the local network. Uh, it was, 
pretty trivial at that point to pivot in and go explore the, the defense contractors network. So I imagine that there's a, a bunch of very similar things happening out there in the world. Um, I actually just got given, this is kind of the, the overlap in the space. I actually just got given uh, IT kind of as one of my responsibilities at Particle because it's now fully remote. It makes no sense to have like an IT department in, we have one office, well, kind of. Um, it makes no sense now. It's more about, um, uh, you know, just, you know, making sure that we issue endpoints with the right controls on them that things like I just described can't happen. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, that's one of my, uh, my new things that I've been asked to take over, um, with the help of some people, thankfully. <laughs> I, can I ask you another question? Because I think a lot of what I see a lot of aspiring uh, security students, you know, there's always the mythical, you know, I want to be a CISO one day, right? A lot of yeah. people, think they want to become the CISO because that, that's the chief, right? And that's the big bucks. So you've been on both sides, yeah. right? You've been the individual contributor on the engineer side, the pen tester side. You've also seen the CISO side. Yeah. Can you talk about the advantages and disadvantages of both and where do you prefer to be? I know you said generalist, which is where I love to live as well. Um, can you talk about, it, about that a little bit? It depends on the company. Um, so I like what I do now because I am a CISO and I can be hands-on. Um, and I can basically, I like doing some of the businessy type things, but I also don't ever want to lose touch with the technical stuff because I really enjoy it. Um, and I'm fortunate you know, I've landed in a place where I can do a bit of both and it's not that big of a deal. In some companies, you know, PISA role is 100% is business focused and you might get people that are very good at it in that position because, you, well, so some people, you know, I came from the technical side, right? So I'm a, I'm what I classify as like a technical CISO now. I, I understand what engineers are talking about and I kind of understand some of the business stuff and can help tie those things together. There are some people that grow up completely on the business side and have no technical context with what's going on. And that I don't think works in every place, but it works for some companies. Um, and then there are, you know, companies where it doesn't really matter how you get to be a CISO, you just get there and then you're the first on the chopping block when something goes horrifically wrong or you're the first to get thrown in front of a customer in the event of something happening. Um, and that kind of sucks. So I think it completely, it completely depends on the, in the environment and the company. Uh, the, um, for me, like, yeah, like I say, I, I have that good balance. So I'm fine. I would say, um, you know, if you go through your career and you you find you've got to try everything once, I think, to find out what you really like. Um, I would say, don't rush into it just for the title. I made that kind of mistake a little bit with when I went to my first place where I became a CISO. I was desperate to get that job because I've been you know trying for years and um, I really wanted to just give it a go. Uh, and so I kind of rushed into it a bit and it didn't really work out. And I was fortunate enough that I was able to kind of land on my feet after it not working out. Um, but, you know, don't chase the title, do what makes you happy. Um, 
there's no rush, right? Like the race is long and in the end it's only with yourself. And um, being a CISO, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's great when it works out in the right environment, but it can be extremely stressful as well if you're not in the right environment. And it, and it really, it, like it, that stress, like not to put anybody off, but like for me, like I've been in some pretty stressful situations in intelligence and uh, I also have a pilot's license. So I, you know, have flown planes with people in them and have been in charge of planes and um, stuff hasn't always gone well and I've had to deal with it. So I'm pretty good at like stressful situations. Um, but it actually like affected me physically when I was super stressed in a CISO role that I didn't enjoy. Um, so it really can like take its toll. Um, and, uh, it's worth knowing exactly what you're getting into and getting an exact description of what the role entails before you commit to being a CISO or anything like that. So take time, make the, make the good decisions, try everything once, but you know, it all depends on the environment you're in and make sure that you're in like a supportive environment. If you're going to go into a more senior role, um, and questions to ask if you are going into a senior role as like a CISO is, um, what's my budget? And then, no, seriously, what's my budget? Because I'll always give you a higher number than you're actually going to get. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, you know, what's the size of my team? How many heads do I have? Like things like that. And that'll give you a good understanding of exactly what you're getting into um, and how much support you really have. Um, so yeah, sorry, I kind of went on a bit there, but. No, I think I agree with you, and I'd love to hip, uh, hear hear Kip's comments as well. But oftentimes, you know, you don't want to be, as you know, said, you don't want to be a, a glorified security engineer in a CISO role because a lot of people love the engineering side and they think, well, right. make the big bucks, I have to go into a CISO role, and then they hate it, right? Yep. And oftentimes, you do lose a lot of that hands-on type of work um, because. And and free, feel free to chime in, Kip. But what have you seen? I mean. The, the, you should be doing less like firewall implementation and, you know, uh, intrusion detection type stuff as a CISO, right? Well, I think it depends on the size of the company that you're at. Um, if you're in a, a medium, like if you're on the low end of the medium size company to a small size company, you're going to do everything. You're, you're going to scrub viruses off of PCs and, um, and you're going to meet with potential investors and you're going to fill out 500 questions, surveys from potential customers and, you know, and you might not even get that title, but, you know, but that's, that's what you're going to do. You're going to do everything. Um, now we get into say a $500 million a year size company or larger then you know, you should have a team. But I, I think once you, once you get a team, once you have somebody who's working for you, um, that is when you have to be a different uh, person at work, I believe, because as soon as you have somebody that you're delegating tasks to and they're relying on you to write their performance review, advocate for them to get a, a salary increase once a year or whatever the cycle is, um, I think it's irresponsible to continue to see yourself as strictly as a technical person. Um, you're, you're doing a great disservice to the person who is working for you, reporting to you. And so at that point, you really have to focus on 
what's best for their development. And if that means that you should be training them to do the technical work that you enjoy, then that's what you need to do. And you need to, you know, be willing to put some things down that you might have a lot of passion for. But if that's what your person needs, you know, if that's what the people on your team need, um, then you need to do that. And you need to be selfless enough to do that. So, and, and I see people struggle with this, especially people who come up from the technical ranks. I did. Um, and that was a struggle for me. So I, I'm only speaking from experience. Yeah, it's very hard to let go sometimes, right? Like, um, if there's like, an, it, for me, it, like even at Concur, when there was like an incident kicking off or something like that, and I, I was a manager level there, so I had a team of engineers, and they were all perfectly capable of, of handling whatever was kicking off. Um, but like, I would still be like hanging over the shoulder, like, hmm, would I be doing that? And I'd have to like physically like back off and go do something else to make sure I wasn't like freaking people out. Yeah, because that because you're not trying to make people nervous and uncomfortable, right. but that's what you're doing. Yeah, is making exactly. them nervous and uncomfortable. They don't like it, and they're going to start to associate that feeling with you whenever you come around, and that's going to set everybody up for badness. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's definitely hard to to delegate for a lot of people. So yeah, I, that's something I've had to make a very deliberate effort to do. Is uh, you know give you know hire people that can deal with ambiguity and just let them get on with it and it will work out and you can always step in if if you need to but yeah it's it's a skill learning to delegate is a skill that's under under appreciated i think yeah definitely so when i hired teams in the past i've always told them you're professionals and i hired you for a reason you know you come to me there's no stupid questions there's no dumb yeah. questions come and ask me if you need anything i'm here for you but I'm not going to jump in and do your job for you. I'm not going to step on your toes. I'm not here to micromanage. I'm here to oversee the project. And it, see, it gets a lot more, but it definitely gets a better response out of the team for sure, I would say. Yeah. It's that same thing. You gotta, I've, I've spent years coming up through technology side in audiovisual and lab for live events. And when I got to management, it was so hard to have to step back and not touch anything. Yeah. You know, I, I'm just like, have to sit here and watch have a 360 view of the show you know of a two million dollar program for some large you know fortune 500 company yeah, yeah. you want to jump in and you want to put your hands back on it and you're like i can't i can't do that right now i can't i can't get involved i need to trust the team that i hired yeah and the other yeah, thing tough. i'd say that yeah the other thing is like a big um a big problem for me anyway to overcome is like when you're an engineer and you know you're hands-on or you're doing pen testing or whatever you have like a very specific work product that comes out of every day right so like i'm going to write this code and ship this feature into the sim or i'm going to set up this alert today or i'm going to complete this pen test so you have very specific goals right and there's always like some tangible output from the end of your day and um the the challenge that you have in management and leadership roles is a lot of the times your days can just be spent. Like I spent a day two weeks ago in 12 hours of meetings talking about things. And I felt you feel guilty sometimes. Like, did I actually do anything today? Did I actually achieve anything? Or was I just talking the whole time? And it's like, well, that's, that's all part of it. And it's important too. Um, but yeah, you have to kind of get into that mindset that you're not going to have like as much tangible stuff at the end of every day that you can lean on and say, oh, I did that today. 
Um, fortunately, right now I'm you know going through an audit um, as part of just like the normal stuff that we do, and so that's given me like nice goals that I can set myself, um, and, and it's given me some of that you know good feeling about uh, being able to achieve very specific things. Uh, but you don't always get that in, in the more senior you become. Mike, I was wondering if I could ask you a question about your forensics background. Yeah. So I'm in a cybersecurity program right now, educational program. I'm starting to lean very heavily towards forensics. Yep. Um, two questions, really. One, is there is there anything that you wish somebody had told you about it before you got into it? And two, how many, how much of your pen testing skills sort of dovetail with forensics work? Um, so on the first one, what would, what do I wish people would have told me? Um, I wish they would have told me that um, it involves real people um, and human emotions and things like that. Um, one of the stories that I often tell is um, uh, I had to um, I had to go image a laptop. Um, so the story was that this is in the forensic diary somewhere, but the story was that. Um, uh, a person was being terminated from their job and they previously worked in the finance department at a government agency. And so what they decided to do for some reason was email a copy of the entire employee roster with like account numbers, national insurance numbers, which are the equivalent of socials in the UK and send them all out to, um, uh, she sent them to like her personal email account, right? Essentially. And um, the, that got caught after the fact. So the file had been sent out. And the forensics involved was basically, hey, well, the story was they said, oh, well, it was an accident. I accidentally selected the wrong file and emailed it to myself, which no one believed. But the, the story was like this person was due like a pretty decent payoff uh, severance package for, for leaving that role. And so... Um, in order to like, they put a hold on that severance package and said, hey, in order to get this, you have to agree. Um, you have to agree to uh, um, uh, have forensics done on your laptop to make sure that, you know, you didn't keep this file around and you deleted it like you said you did. So what happened was they had to go image this machine and it was like a 750 gigabyte Dell um, Dell machine and this was like 10 years ago so it was fairly slow to image and I had to go do it in front of that person and as it turned out randomly their 17 year old kid who came along to the lawyer's office for whatever reason and so I was sat there and I was just imaging this machine and like it was very awkward um, and that's probably not the only situation I've been in where there's like been actual real people involved and it's like oh this is getting awkward now um, so that that's something to always bear in mind and then uh, the other question about pen testing involved. So yeah, they, they kind of, you know, one often leads to the other, I'd say. So uh, the, um, the, 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 the pen testing. So uh, let's think about this. I'm trying to think of a good example of where they kind of intersected. Um, so yeah, the, it was a pen test that led to the discovery of the dodgy admin control panel thing that was exposed to the internet. That actually started out life as a pen test. 
Um, but it quickly evolved into a forensics exercise when, um, you know, we found out that it had been like that for a year. And at that point, you can't really trust anything in the active directory that that thing was in front of, because who knows who's been in there and done what. Um, so that, yeah, you, you tend to find things in, in pen testing that may need forensics, or you may find things in forensics that may need pen testing to better understand the, um, the, the vector for, you know, how things got in there. Um, so it's, yeah, they do, they do intertwine very closely and it's good to have a bit of an understanding of both for sure. Fantastic. Thank you. That was excellent. Thanks. Um, we do have a question in the chat room, if it's okay if I ask. Um, it's how do you prepare to become a CISO, especially if you're coming in from a GRC background? Um, I would say, uh, I would say learn if you're coming from GSC background, take the time to kind of learn as much about kind of the technological side of things as possible, just to understand kind of, um, you know, when, when engineers and developers um, come to you with technical problems, um, you know, you don't have to be the smartest technologist in the room to understand them. You just kind of have to be able to reassure people that you understand enough to, to be able to action the concern appropriately. Um, and, you know, one of the big challenges, especially in tech companies, and, you know, I'm in Seattle, the Seattle area as well, and it's like, um, obviously, a lot of tech companies up here, and one of the things is that um, everybody has a right to be given the opportunity to, to take on that job, no matter how they got there. Um, but sometimes the more technically-minded folks can believe that, um, you know, you have to come from a technical background, um, so, uh, you have to, um, you know, just understand what the, you know, understand and emphasize with whatever they're trying to raise as best as you, as best as you can, um, and make sure you know how to ask the right questions to develop an understanding of any, any kind of technical thing, because obviously it's a very technical role, but, um, it doesn't have to, it's not, it doesn't have to be the whole time. Um, so like, uh, you know. How, doing what you can to broaden your understanding to the point where you can, you know, ask the right questions and work with people of varying technical skill levels is, is super important. Thank you. Um, I had a question about uh, aspiring or junior uh, members who joined your team when you were a hiring manager in terms of what personality traits did you find like or stories that you have where they succeeded? You know, uh, what were some of your best employees? Um, members. For yeah. So, yeah. Um, so actually probably my best hire ever, uh, was a lady called Darcy and I worked with her at three different companies. I hired her at each one and, um, she didn't have a, huge technical background she she came from law enforcement she worked in like the state gaming commission something like that and did like investigations for them and she also came from a cpa and audit background uh but she wanted to get into the technical side of things and just her ability to like uh see um you know understand some of the businessy side of things 
understand some of the financial side of things. We first met at Concur, so it was an expense, you know, platform. So there's obviously more financial relevance there. Um, but just like um, the ability to, to to never stop unrelentingly digging into things was phenomenal. And uh, that's why she's so good. Like she, she will just keep drilling into things and is not afraid to ask, ask the hard questions and, you know, never assumes that, you know, never takes things at face value or always drills into things um and that kind of for me anyway at the time that kind of complemented my more kind of hands-on technical skills um and that was kind of why we we paired together so well um so that's that's a success story um i've also had some not so successful stories about people i've hired so um in the interest of balance like i hired probably the best technical person i've ever met um and i ended up having to let them go because you know, they, they came with a very serious bunch of technical skills, but absolutely zero desire or ability to want to hang out as part of the team or be part of the team. Um, so they thought that they had special, because they were so advanced technically, they thought they, they could excuse themselves from doing, you know, some of the daily stuff that everybody on the team did, no matter who they are. Um, and so that one didn't work out. And it was, it was annoying because, I really needed that technical skill, but I also knew that the kind of health of the team was more important than having one person that was really good. Um, so I actually wrote in security operations and practice, like there's a whole, that's one of the, the last book I wrote, there's like a whole section in there about um, like personality types and how they fit on different teams. I'm trying to think of some of the types, but like there was things like accountant type, uh, business person, technologist, um, developer like there's a there's a role for all these different kind of skill sets to play in a security in a security team and i think one of the lines i put in there was like um you know people often say that there's like a skill shortage in cybersecurity, and i don't believe that's true i think there is a shortage of people with like the vision to take people with different backgrounds and put them together and apply them in a cybersecurity context but i don't think there's a shortage of actual people capable of doing the work um, so yeah, it's, it takes all sorts of personalities to kind of mesh together and make a successful team. Um, and it takes, you know, only one of those people to, to kind of have a really good skill set and, you know, not, not fit in with the team and think they're slightly different for some reason to, to kind of screw it up. <laughs> Thank you. I had something sort of related to that in terms of what stands out about a person way before you hire them, right? Um, how did they come into your radar? Was it through personal connections mostly that you hired mm -hmm. through, uh, for, again, for junior roles? Or was it um, something in their resume stood out, something in their work stood out? Um, I would say personal connections is a, never hurt. Um, I think I'd say that I've hired through personal connections and basically through like somebody who's seen a person work um, a fairly decent amount, uh, probably about 50% of the time. But I, there, there comes a point when that doesn't always work anymore because you become friends with the person and you don't always want to be friends with your team, which is a weird thing to say. Um, but it becomes harder to, to manage them professionally if you're really good friends. Um, 
because if you know if you want to make a change or if something's not working out then it becomes harder to raise right so i'm always a bit cautious about that also you know i'm a bit like ron swanson and having three friends is is sufficient um but uh the uh yeah so I'd say half their personal connections are just people that you, you've kind of seen work before or other people on the team have. And then I always like, I look at resumes and I look at like, uh, especially in junior roles, like what, I look for like side projects and research and things like that that people have done. Um, and, you know, usually in like, usually for junior roles, people are very keen to show you either their technical skills or their investigative skills um, and they dread the actual talking interview part of an interview. So it's usually a pretty good indicator of what someone's going to be like. So what I did once, I was hiring for like a pen test lead position. And so it made sense, right? Like that I had like a bunch of vulnerable web apps that I'd written for, I was actually teaching a course at UW about pen testing. And so I had all these ready to roll. So I was just like, yeah, you know, during these interviews, I'll just throw that up and see if anybody wants to play on it. Well, you know, instead of actually answering questions. And, you know, four out of the five candidates for a pen test lead position were just like, you know, no, I don't want to. It's not, doesn't, you know. And then there was the one person who was like, oh, sweet. This is way better than answering questions. So they just got stuck in there and they, they didn't, you know, break into the whole application, but they just showed me kind of how they were thinking about it and things like that. Um, so I think kind of like, you know, understanding that people interview in different ways and particularly in, in more junior roles, people just like the opportunity to be able to show you the technical skills and things that they have um, versus, you know, conversations and answering questions about theoretical things. Um, so I always kind of try and do that. One other interview that I did, I, I had a, I didn't mention it. I just hid a, what's called a poem plug. Uh, it was a, uh, like a pen testing Dropbox. And I just hid it in the room, like in plain sight. Um, it just looks like a power supply, but it's actually got a Raspberry Pi in it and is used to give you like a shell in a network. And I hid it there and I just wanted to see if anybody said anything when I was interviewing. And yeah, sure enough, like five candidates, one spotted it and was right away was like, why have you got a pump plug in here? Do you know that's in here? And I'm like, yeah, I see. So just little things like that that help you kind of see through things. Um, another story I'll tell very quickly is, uh, the reason you can't always trust resumes, right, is like, I got this awesome resume, brought the candidate in, and this person had like a bunch of different experiences in all these different things. And I was like, holy, you know, this is really awesome. I need to get this person in straight away. Got him in. And I said, all right, so says here you did a lot of forensics, blah, blah. Uh, and then the person said, um, well, what happened was, is whenever forensics needed to be done, I, I would bring in a consultant. And I said, okay. Um, well, it says you did pen testing here. Did you pen test it? Well, what happened was, is whenever I needed to do pen testing, I brought in a consultant. I was like, okay. So have you done any actual hands-on forensics or pen testing? No. I was like, you know, when I look at my resume, uh, it doesn't say like plumber, electrician, because whenever I need those things, I bring in a consultant who is a plumber and electrician. So you always have to be a bit careful with resumes um, because, you know, obviously some people like to make things up to a, a different degree than others. Um, so that's why I always like to go face to face and just see, you know, how people react when they're given like a technical challenge or how I feel like they would fit into a team. I think that's more important than just doing it on resumes alone. And I look, but you have to start resumes. So I always look for things like, you know, side projects and, and actual experiences rather than things people say they do um, at, at other jobs for sure. <laughs>